0: Today on the Emmaus Institute for Disciple Making podcast, we're going to be joining Pastor Brian as he continues in his series "Gospel Center Discipleship." He'll be teaching us more specifically what discipleship looks like. All right, guys. Well, I'm glad you're here. <clears throat> um, glad we didn't scare you off the last few weeks. Bo is out of town this week. He is uh, visiting family in Minnesota, so you guys pray for him. But uh, let me pray for us, and we'll jump into our content for tonight. God, we love you, and we're grateful for uh, opportunities like this to to gather as your people and to uh, contemplate the Scriptures, contemplate what it means to make disciples. And I just pray that as we do that again tonight, you would continue to help form our minds to be more closely aligned with your Scriptures, Lord. You would form our hearts to be more affectionate for you, Lord, you would change us more and more into your image, your likeness, uh, that we might live out this Christian walk with, uh, with faithfulness to your word, with faithfulness to your design. I just pray for tonight. I pray that you would um, guide our time, guide this discussion, guide uh, the teaching that, that I prepared. I pray that you would speak through me and that we would encounter you as we spend time together. Um, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Okay, um... Well, we'll, let's do a little bit of overview recap. I know a a few of you have had to miss a few of the weeks, but um, week three is where we are. Uh, Week number one, we took some time to define what is a disciple. We gave an overview of the class and then tried to define um, the, the word disciple for you guys. Does anybody remember what a disciple is? You are allowed to look at your notes if you need to. There are three big identities, parts of it. Um, I said, learns the gospel, relates the gospel, and communicates the gospel. Awesome. Yeah, so another way to phrase those three things, knowing Jesus, learning from Him, obeying Him. So we, we're people who uh, seek to, to know Him intimately, not just know about Him, but know Him in, in personal relationship with uh, Christ, to learn from Him. So there's an academic component uh, to being a disciple. You're wanting to grow, not just know God personally, relationally, but also academically Um, learn from him, learn what he means to teach us. And then lastly, to serve him, to um, missionally obey what he's commanded us to do. Um, And all that's wrapped up in the Great Commission. If you'll remember um, going and making disciples and teaching people to obey the things that God's commanded us, that's that's what it is to be a disciple, following after Jesus uh, in those ways. Um, And then last week we tried to uh, basically define discipleship for you. So we covered chapters <clears throat> 2 and chapter 3. We talked about uh, that, that very often in churches historically there's been this uh, dichotomy, this distinction between evangelism and discipleship. And what can inadvertently happen when you begin to separate those things in your mind is that you, uh, you begin to think that the gospel, trusting in Jesus, is what gets you into the Christian life. That's evangelism. But then that you need something else, some sort of like super Christianity, some, some new program for growth. To then grow you up. And we we tried to articulate as clearly as possible that no, the gospel, trusting in Jesus, turning from dependency on self and turning to Christ, uh, putting faith in him, that's what not just what brings us into the kingdom, but it's it's how we grow. It's the, it's the means of sanctification as well. We took some time to look at Romans chapter 7 and chapter 8, if you'll remember, thinking about what Paul is prescribing for us as he's talking about his own struggles with flesh, his own dealing with immaturity in his life. And he's frustrated with it. He, he's in that same space where so many of us get, wanting to see God grow us, but not experiencing it, not seeing us doing what we want to do. We keep doing what we don't want to do. You know, that's all of the end of Romans 7. And he he laments, just as we so often do, who will deliver me? How am I ever going to get out of this rut, this this tension of of not, um, not being mature, not growing into obedience? Um, and he doesn't, at, at the turn of that, he doesn't offer like, the, the 12 steps to sanctification and the 12 steps to growth, he just says, thanks be to God. And there's no condemnation for those in Christ. And the, the uh, Spirit has done what the law could not do. And we're not slaves to fear anymore. And we're adopted as sons. And we wait with eager longing for the redemption of our bodies. And, and uh, God will work it all together for good. And there's nothing that can separate us from His love. I mean, it doesn't make any sense, but He just roots you deeply. If you study that passage closely, He roots you deep deeply in the love of God that's for you in Christ, roots you in the gospel. And what he's teaching through that, modeling for us, is we need, we need the gospel each and every day of our lives. We need to rest in the arms of Christ. We will not find ourselves less fleshly by our own efforts to be less fleshly. You know, the parts of you that you do not like, the parts of you that are unspiritual, that are not following after the Lord, the temptations that you perpetually seem to find yourself struggling with, the solution to those is not increasing moral effort and building up further biceps at the gym so that you can you know, have, have the strength to finally overcome. It, it's not you. It's resting in Christ and learning to really sit yourself in the finished work of God. And then learning how in that the Spirit, it says, will, will give life to your mortal body and begin to teach you how to put to death the flesh. So um, all that stuff is good. We're going to get a little bit more specific into that stuff um, today. But I want to give you a definition. We did not actually define discipleship and give you a definition last week. So if you like fill in the blanks, this is just mean. It's, it's basically all blanks um, in this definition. I've got a few articles and prepositions in there. But uh, this is what I would say is a good definition of discipleship. The infinite journey, just write all this down and then I'll explain it. The infinite journey to die to self and become like Jesus through repentance from sin. Am I going too fast? All right. The infinite journey To die to self and become like Christ, like Jesus, through repentance from sin and faith in Christ. So, that's a a lot of words. Um, It's a little bit wordy, but, uh, but basically what it's trying to say is that we're never going to graduate from growing into likeness from Christ. That's why it says infinite. You will struggle, just hear me, you will struggle with your flesh until the day you die. Those parts of you that you're frustrated with, just get comfortable with being frustrated with it, okay? We will get there someday. John Piper talks about the fact that like, there's, there's two ways that we're done with our flesh. One, Jesus comes back and we get the you know, twinkling of an eye, hearing the trumpet, raised with Christ, given our glorified bodies, uh, because we, we live to the moment of the second coming. Or we die. And in those moments, we'll be remade and we'll be done at last. But until then, it's an infinite journey. It's a struggle. It's a, it's a constantly learning how to depend in faith on Jesus and, and let Him uh, define us and, and remake us. Um, and the, it's constantly, it's a journey of dying. It's a journey of, of learning to take up your cross, die to your own desires, and, and put your faith in Christ to become like him. So repenting from sin, trusting in Jesus. The fight is to repent. The fight is to repent of the temptation to always begin to look back in your own strength. So that's discipleship. Um, and, and notice this is not about like, this is this is a personal thing. Um, the definition there is not about like other people at all. It's really about each, each person should walk through the process of discipleship in their life. So then... Uh, We'll define today what disciple-making is, but um, discipleship is a personal thing. You have a few more blanks there. That second point, this is an individual journey. So again, it's, it's you. It's individually experienced, but it has um, corporate responsibility. And what I mean by that is, is the process is for a person to walk through becoming a disciple of Jesus, but we have a command to make disciples. So we have a responsibility to help others walk through discipleship as well, if that makes sense. So um, that is, and that process of helping others walk through discipleship is disciple making. That's you making disciples, helping them become more like Christ yourself. Um, So tonight we're going to do two things. First, we're going to talk about twisted motives. So basically how discipleship goes bad how it breaks apart with our sinful natures and how we approach it real wrongly and end up with bad results. Um, Then we'll take some time to discuss. And then uh, part two tonight will be about fixing that. So having gospel motivations and discipleship, which is really where the solution is found. Um, We'll get into all that. So uh, part one, twisted motives. So the goal of disciple making is to help each other turn from sin and trust in Jesus. This is, this is what we're trying to do with each other when we're engaging in disciple making. And the place where this most often goes wrong, here's your first fill in the blank, is in accountability. So if you've ever been in a discipleship relationship, I guarantee you it has included some form of accountability. Sometimes it's a real formal accountability where there's like questions to be answered where you're like walking through with each other, uh, you know, did you do this this week? Did you do that this week? Um, You've got basically yes or no questions, where you have to hold yourself accountable in front of other people for uh, being obedient to the Lord. Um, So uh, that's what I mean when I'm talking about accountability, the the practice of holding each other accountable to the standards of Christ. Um, And this is a really good thing. Like the Bible commends us to biblical community, and it commends us to accountability. If you think back to um, like Ecclesiastes chapter four, that's the passage that talks about, you know a cord of three strands is not easily broken. There's a greater return for people who are working together than one person on his own. Uh, if one falls down, his brothers can pick him up. You know, even uh, Galatians, you get into chapter uh, chapters five and, and particularly chapter six, um, and it talks about the importance of uh, if somebody falls into sin, you should restore them. Like like we have an obligation to each other to this like, helping people not stay in sin. So, accountability's biblical idea, it's a good idea, but the problem is we bring our broken, sinful natures and our twisted motives to accountability and it becomes broken. So, two ways that accountability typically breaks down in the church. If you've been a part of accountability that hasn't really worked in the past, I'm telling you it is one of these two things. Number 1, religious accountability. Religious accountability and religious accountability fixates on the idea that the solution to sin issues and disobedience in a person's life is performance. So it sort of operates from the mindset of, if I can just get more eyes on me, more people looking at the deeper parts of my soul, the deeper parts of my sin life, if I can have more people inspecting me, then I'll do better because I don't want to be judged. You know, it's it's sort of operating on this... Uh, on this, um, motive, motivation of, uh, of performance. Like, like you're, you're putting yourself in front of people's eyes so that you'll have judgment. And the only way to not experience the negative consequences of being judged and condemned by your peers is if you perform well, right? So accountability that's religious, that's based on that it is, is after performance standards. And so that's what it results in. It always results in, uh, people judging you. So it, if you're in one of these accountability groups, and you have fallen. Let's say, uh, you know, you're you're talking about gossiping. And one of the questions is, did you gossip this week? It's a a struggle we all have. Did you talk about somebody in a negative light when they weren't around, not having a chance to defend themselves, um, not assuming the best about them? Did you gossip? So you say, you know, you did. So you say, yeah, I gossiped this week. So then usually what happens in these types of accountability groups is there is judgment poured out on you. You know, the, the whole point, the way it works is to make you feel so bad that you won't do it again, sort of like the spanking uh, model that we do with with our little kids, um, and, and so it just becomes this sort of contentious environment where you're you're really just trying to look good. It's all performance based. Um, how many of you have been in environments like this, right? Like, yeah, this is usually what accountability, especially if you've been a Christian, grown up in the church, this is like. I feel like every teenager has ended up in one of these accountability groups at some point in their life. But the problem is it's nothing more than, than basically, you know, performance-based religion is the foundation for all the false religions in the world. Like that's what Islam is at its core. That's what Mormonism is at its core. That's what so many false religions are. It's, it's self-fixing to make yourself righteous before God, cleaning yourself up. Um, and that's not Christianity at all. The work of, uh, of a Christian is resting in the finished work of Christ, um, not resting in our own hands, which is the substance of religion. Um, Dodson, the way he sort of describes this in the book, I love how he says it. If you didn't get a chance to read chapter 3, really would encourage you to do so. And chapter 4, they're both great. This is the heart of this book, chapters 3 and 4. It's, it's giving you the glimpse of what is gospel-centered, you know, discipleship. What is the thought of of centering on the gospel as you disciple one another? Um, But he uses these words. He says, when it's religious accountability, it becomes nothing but a duty-driven, rule-keeping journey, journey, which I think is a great way to describe it. It's it's um, performance-based, and all the delights of obedience that we should experience feel nothing more than, like, dutiful. It feels like doing chores rather than, you know, walking with the Lord. Um, and, the, and the real issue is it doesn't work. Um, at the end of the day, there's no power in that. We don't have in ourselves what it takes to, to clean ourselves up to be sanctified. Um, I love, I put this quote in your notes for you so that you'd have it. It's one of my favorite quotes in the whole world. Um, there's an old uh, pastor, preacher, uh, Puritan guy lived in the 1600s in England named John Owen. Um, and he writes this in, in one of his great books, Mortification of the Flesh. Um, But he says this, mortification, which basically means sanctification. Think about it like that. So like growing in the likeness of Christ, killing off your sin, and really walking in obedience to the Lord. He says, mortification from a self-strength carried on by ways of self-invention unto the end of a self-righteousness is the soul and substance of all false religion in the world. That's just good. That's just straight up good. And if you're not careful, here's the truth. If you're not careful, you, with your own hands, can turn Christianity into that in a discipleship group. You can surround yourself with people and end up encouraging each other to obey Christ, but you're doing it out of duty and out of performance and out of effort, not ever resting in the gospel. So, uh, so that's the first way it breaks down. The second way I would say that it breaks down is what I would call confession booth accountability. Well, not me, Dodson calls it that, but I think it's a great word. Um, <clears throat> confession booth accountability. And this is basically the opposite <clears throat> So rather than like judgment-based performance in a, in a discipleship environment, you'll have repentanceless uh, forgiveness, if that makes sense. So the first, the first one is like all judgment, and this one is all forgiveness. There's no accountability whatsoever. Um, in, in these type of environments, you confess your sins, then I confess mine, and we all claim the blood of Jesus, pat each other on, on the back, and go home. There's no... Uh, accountability towards, well, have you repented? Have you turned from your sin back to the Lord? Have you, uh, ha- have you made a turn in your heart? So these environments end up becoming circles of cheap grace, if you're familiar with Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, his book, Cost of Discipleship, is incredible. Would commend you to it. Um, but he talks extensively at the beginning of that book about the concept of cheap grace, which would, uh, easy way to conceptualize this if you grew up in like a Southern Baptist church environment would be the crusade which I'm not saying that crusades are bad. I saw many people uh, that I grew up with get saved and begin to follow the Lord in a crusade environment. But here's what's dangerous about a crusade. You can have a speaker who scares a bunch of people into hell, proclaims that Jesus will forgive you and, and, and not, you know, when you die, you won't go to hell, you'll go to heaven. So come forward and pray this prayer and be saved. And you'll get masses come forward. Uh, but no follow-up, no... No teaching the people that, okay, well, Christianity really looks like dying to yourself and following Jesus, putting to death the, the flesh and, and walking in a lifelong pattern of, of, of godliness. Um, so people end up thinking that there's some grace given to them without ever walking in, in obedience to it. And, and James would say, the Bible would say, that faith without works, faith that doesn't become something, is actually dead. It's a dangerous reality. So that would be cheap grace, throwing it out without teaching people Hey, the life of true, truly having faith in Jesus, truly surrendering your heart to Him will result in you following after Him. Uh, true grace always results in following. So these environments, confession booth accountability can be cheap grace, which results in nothing but what I would call cheap peace. Um, which is such a good phrase for, if any of you have been in these environments, after you confess... You walk away and you feel a little better because like you told somebody that you've, you struggled, you' told somebody that you sinned. but there's like, no, your soul's not at rest, right? Like there's no, there's no peace there. The, the peace of Christ that comes with true repentance is not there. So uh, both of these are, are you know uh, failures of accountability. If the issue of religious accountability is that they don't take grace seriously, the issue um, of confession booth accountability would be that they don't take repentance seriously. Um, and it's all basically a case of twisted motives. So broken hearts motivated by broken motives fleshing themselves out into corrupting. What is a good thing? Accountability is good uh, as the Bible you know, commends us to it, but we break it with our sinful natures and, and sort of mess it all up. Um, so that's, that's basically chapter, um, chapter 3. There's one more thing that I think is worth us talking about, which is uh, if you read all the way to the end of the chapter, he gets into um, basically the two motivations behind these these broken accountabilities. So let me just cover these real quickly. Um, it's the last part of your notes there. I think we have time. So the first uh, motivation of our heart that creates these bad forms of accountability is, number one, religious performance. That one's pretty obvious. You could also call that legalism. So this is the motivation in our hearts to measure our worth by how well we perform. All right, so this is what you see in the Gospels in the, in the Pharisees, like trying to perfectly live out all the commands of, of the Bible so that they feel, as they're performing, like they're right before God. The mindset of a, of a legalist says this, if I perform well, God will accept me. And conversely, if I don't perform well, God will reject me or be angry with me. And just so you all feel comfortable, this is all of us. Like we all have a Pharisee, a little Pharisee, that takes up residence in our heart. And we have to be careful to quash him down. Because all of us, if we're not careful, will forget what we have is true in the gospel. That we stand righteous before God. We literally, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Romans chapter 8 verse 1, we talked about that last week. That statement is so scandalous. There's no condemnation. Condemnation—it's like present, ongoing. There's never gonna be condemnation for those of you who are in Christ. Like you, before Christ, He's not condemning you. Even tonight, you go engage in the worst forms of of sinful, idolatrous behavior. You're in Christ. Truly, there's no condemnation for you. Like there's forgiveness in Jesus, uh, and we forget that we're so. We just feel so dirty. Our conscience condemns us ourselves and we feel so dirty we feel that wretched man that i am um and that drives us to religious performance trying to clean ourselves up um and that's the heart of a legalist that's the heart of legalism that's not the gospel we need to draw ourselves back to christ and claim the promises of scripture there's no condemnation for me i've been forgiven so that's the first one when you don't fight back against that when you just live in legalism your discipleship environments are going to tend towards that um performance-based religious accountability. Um, and then the second one, the second twisted motive, you could say, is a uh, spiritual license, is what Dodson calls it. Um, you also often in the church hear this called licentiousness, so the opposite of legalism. So if the legalist is motivated to like perform in order to be right before, before the Lord, the, the person who's licentious their motivation is to find meaning and significance in life by being free from all rules. Um, so these are like your prototypical your hippies. You know, they, they prefer, pre- prefer no, um, no rules upon them, no laws. Um, you know, disciples who operate with spiritual license in that mindset, they sort of perceive themselves as liberated and set free from the bondage of obedience to the law. They kind of view, and here's what's so dangerous about licentiousness. It's based on, it's partly true, right? Jesus did die and we're forgiven of our failures to the law, right? Uh, He died on the cross. He has set us free from condemnation, just as we just talked about. Um, But the problem is uh, he didn't die to free us from obedience. We are called to obedience. So even though we're not condemned, he's freed us from condemnation, We haven't been freed from obedience. We're still called to live a lifestyle of obedience to the things that God's commanded us. So uh, the heart, you know, and usually we fall into one of those two camps. I tend to think church people, people who have grown up in the church, fall more often towards the legalism mindset, the pharisaical mindset than the licentious one. But I know people who fall into that category. Um, Some of you who are older, you may have children that are in that category, like just, you know, all right, I believed in Jesus, so I'm free, so now I'll just do whatever I want. You know, he, the blood of Jesus has forgiven me. Um, but regardless, those are the two um, that, that sort of corrupt our heart and make us operate in, in uh, broken accountability. Um, and the issue with both of them is really, at the end of the day, they're replacing Jesus at the center as the redeemer of your heart with something else. When it's performance, who becomes the, the redeemer of your heart? Is it it's yourself, yeah. You're replacing Christ, depending on Him to bring life to you, with yourself. And you end up worshiping your own morality rather than Christ. And with, uh, with licentiousness, freedom becomes the Savior that you worship. And you, you will resist any sort of regulation, any sort of uh, rule towards bondage. You, you live at the altar of freedom. Which the book actually explains that, uh, I love this quote in there, uh, Dodson says, freedom is a very deceptive master. If you read that part, he basically talks to people who live this way. Usually, some of the ways it shows up is like in um, believing that you can drink as much as you want, like alcoholism, and, and people stepping into like, like true alcohol addiction because they're like, I'm free. I'm covered in the blood of Jesus. There's nothing wrong. You know, what, is, what does uh, Paul say? Everything is permissible. So the licentious people claim that. And they say, "Oh yeah, I'll do whatever I want. It's permissible. Everything's permissible." And so they'll end up walking. But, but you you ask any child of an alcoholic, and you just ask them, "Is your is your father is your mother living in freedom?" No, no, they're in bondage to their freedom. You know, that's why he says freedom is a very deceptive master because it, it ends up enslaving you. You just you just don't realize it. So, uh, did you have a question, Tyler? I, I was just gonna well sort of add to it and ask about the freedom I never had heard it put that way like and I didn't know if, um, if you saw it as the same like meaning the definition of freedom in Christ as in you're not free from condemnation but um, I mean you are free from condemnation but not obedience yeah and um, is that the same freedom that Paul talks about as like it is for freedom that Christ set us yeah. free. And, um. Yeah, I would say so. Um, Galatians is where that's found. Galatians chapter 5 is where that verse is found. And Galatians on the whole is everything I'm talking about. If you go study that book. I mean, Paul, everything. All of Paul's epistles sort of unpack this. But Galatians in particular. The, the issue in Galatia was that people were stopping... <laughs> doing exactly what i'm talking about they were stopping trusting in jesus because jews had come in and said listen yeah you trust in christ that's great now you're clean before god you need to start obeying the law again though you need to go back to the dietary laws of, of leviticus and the, the cleanliness laws and all these things um and and paul steps in there and says they're they're lying to you it is for freedom that christ has set you free so there is a little bit of legal freedom that he's he's showing them there like there's um Christ did free us from some of the Old Testament legal laws. There's morale, morality laws, though, that have always reflected the heart of God, right? Like, like murdering. Jesus did not come so that we can murder others. That's very clear in the Scriptures. Jesus himself actually said if you hate somebody in your heart, it's the same as murder, right? So it's, it's, not, it's, it's inconsistent biblically to say that Jesus came to free us from all of the Old Testament law. But there was part of Old Testament law, Old Covenant law, that was what we would call the cleanliness law. So like don't eat pork um, and make sure when you have a baby, if it's a, if it's a male, you have to stay away from the temple for seven weeks. If it's a female, you have to stay away from the temple for 13 weeks. That's in Leviticus. In fact, actually, there are people out there today that still practice that, that if a woman has a baby, she's not welcome in the church for, you know, especially if you get to some fundamentalist um, churches. Because they don't recognize that there's part of the law that's been, been redeemed um, in Christ. In fact, this is an issue in Uganda. When I go, I, they love to ask questions to pastors anytime they have one because there's such a, a poverty of theological education there that when they have somebody who knows the Bible, they love to ask questions they're confused about. So one of them is, why are we allowed to eat pork? People keep telling me I'm not allowed to eat pork, and I actually see it in the Bible. They're showing me the verses. So why are, why are we allowed to eat pigs now? Are we allowed to eat pigs now? And I take him to Acts chapter 10, which is the place nobody ever looks, but where Jesus tells Paul uh, or Peter, rise and kill and eat. And he's like, and Peter says, no, by no means. I would never break the law. This is the old covenant law. I've been trained to obey it. And God's teaching him, no, that's the cleanliness law. And it never made you clean to begin with. It was just to show you how far from my heart you are. Christ makes you clean. And what I have made clean, do not call unclean. So he's, he's in those moments, he's releasing us from the cleanliness law of the Old Testament. Yeah. It isn't the concept of freedom, it's a freedom, um, not a freedom um, to, but a freedom from. I mean, it's a freedom from the law and a freedom to serve the yeah. Spirit, to walk in the Spirit. Yeah. It's not a lack of authority. It's just a yeah. freedom from... The that's the thing the idea of, of freedom where you're truly free is, is, is a misconception it, you know you're, you're always a slave to something and Paul makes that point in Romans chapter 6 he, he says we've been set free from sins that we can become a slave to righteousness he's still using slavery terms for the believer and the point is we're not we're not Christ did not come and set you free so that you could live out the passions of your flesh that's not what the Christian life is made to be Christ set you free so that you could finally savor new affections in Christ Himself, which is what we're going to talk about in part two, actually. But uh, part one, this is our broken state. This is—I just want you to feel the weight of this. This is where accountability goes wrong, where disciple making goes wrong. Us focusing on either not requiring repentance or us only requiring performance. We're like missing the heart of it. We we fall into these broken states with our broken motives. And we end up not actually calling people to the true repentance and faith in Jesus that they need. So that's what we're going to get to in part two, gospel motivations and discipleship. But for now, do me a favor. we got a few minutes here. Uh, circle up with the people around you. Um, if you came with like a spouse or a girlfriend or a fiance or something like that, at least talk to another couple. Don't just talk to each other. Um, but we've got a few discussions there. Uh, one and two are on the front. There's a third question on the back. It just wouldn't fit on the front. So talk through those. About 10 minutes, we'll continue. All right, guys, I'm going to pull us back together. <clears throat> Would love to uh, leave you all in conversation. It looks like all of you were still talking, which is really great. Um, oftentimes, I think that the conversations is where the stuff actually takes root. Um, so I love, I love seeing y'all talk. I'm going to fly through this last half so that you can have a little bit more time to talk through things at the end, but, um, so the state where we often sit naturally by our own natures, even when we're trying to be obedient to the Lord is, is pretty messed up. We can, we can break down, um, we can end up losing the heart of Christianity from, our our walk with Christ. So how do we fix it? How do we get the gospel back into the middle of it um, and get this performance-based rule-breaking or rule-keeping, licentiousness or legalism, get that out of the middle where it so often sits? Um, So what Dodson suggests is something that that lines up with a ton of really faithful (coughs) teachers through time. So his book right here is like a condensation of Uh, a lot of teaching by John Piper, a lot of teaching by Tim Keller, a lot of teaching by uh, Jonathan Edwards, a good bit of teaching from John Owen. Um, So as you read this, if you ever go back and read John Owen and John Edwards and some of the uh, most pivotal, formative, pastoral leaders of the last 400 years, you're gonna see a lot of the influences in all this. So I say all that to say what he's suggesting as solutions are time-tested solutions that have given a lot of people uh, freedom and health in this area. Since the Reformation, we've had 500 years of of, uh, Christian studying, scholarship, writing, and thought, and preaching on the subject of really resting in the gospel. And there's a lot of good stuff out there. So, uh, his major point, and this is all going to be chapter 4, what we're going to cover now. Please read it, it's very good. But his major point here is that... um, Our motivations are so important when we approach our own discipleship and trying to make other disciples, because it's totally possible to do the right thing for the wrong reasons in the Christian walk. So when your heart is in this broken state of performance, you can be being obedient to Jesus, but your heart is still far from him. This is so the Pharisees through the scriptures, when Jesus would would call them whitewashed tombs, like you're doing it all right on the outside, but your heart isn't there. Um, so it's so important for us to keep a careful eye on our heart. And as we're making disciples to teach them, what's most important is your heart, not your, not your behavior. Behavior actually grows out of the heart. Um, if you're just dressing it up, it's not going to last. Like you're just painting something that, that sin is going to eventually spew out of. So um, gospel-centered discipleship, discipleship that's really focused on uh, keeping Christ at the center, is going to be uh, discipleship, disciple-making, that aims for the heart. Uh, aims for proper motivations. And Dodson covers three big motivations that he says are good things for us to uh, focus our heart upon, train our heart upon as motivators for us to walk with the Lord. So the first one is religious affection. Religious affection. Um, And if you just want to put that in layman's terms, if you're taking notes there, put love God, (laughs) Um, because that's what it's going at. So motivating your heart. One of the best motivators to actually see obedience begin to flow out of your heart naturally is cultivating in yourself a true love for God, a true affection for Christ. Not just a scientific understanding of the gospel, not just a theological clarity of what Christ did for you on the cross, but an actual bring me to tears love for Jesus in your heart. Right? So you all know the difference between science and art. You know the difference between mechanics and mathematics and numbers and emotion. We all have that reality in our life. The way you feel for your spouse if you're married should be more than just like you know, uh, mathematical equations in your head. There should be something affectionate there. And that's what, that's what he's getting at when he uses this idea of religious affection. And he's stealing all of this from Jonathan Edwards. Um, Jonathan Edwards um, wrote a lot on this topic. He's a very difficult author to read, but I again would commend you to him. He's he's really great. Um, but Dodson makes the point that what you love is your Lord. It's gonna it's gonna result in you obeying it. So so learn to train your heart to actually savor and love God. And he points to a lot of scriptures that actually bring um, bring this reality to the surface that show that this is how it's supposed to work. Uh, John 14 uh, verse 15 is one of them you can write that down if you'd like this is where Jesus says if you love me you will keep my commands he's basically saying obedience follows love if your heart is set on me obedience will come just set your heart on me first Um, you also see uh, some of that in Psalm 34 taste and see that the Lord is good Um, that there's a there's a savoring of God that we should we should have as believers that forms the foundation of everything else that comes. Um, I love the, the uh, quote that he has from Jonathan Edwards about honey. Did anybody read that? Yeah, isn't that so good? I just want to um, quote it because it's so good. Well, actually, I think he's just summarizing. This may not be the exact quote. Jonathan Edwards, like I said, is very hard to read, so I'm sure this is not the exact quote, actually. But he says this, I can show you honey, and you can marvel at its golden hue, the way it reflects, uh, refre- reflects, refracts light, and its viscosity, and I can tell you that it's sweet, and you can believe that it's sweet, but unless you have tasted it, you don't know that it's sweet. Believing honey is sweet doesn't mean you really know it is sweet. I could be lying to you. You only know honey is sweet when you've tasted it. You say the same is true about strawberries or whatever, that there's a, there's a personal savoring and tasting of honey that's different than just knowing about it. And, and that's what he's, he's pointing out when he says religious affection. We need to cultivate in our hearts a longing and an affection for uh, God that will come as you behold him, as you gaze him. Um, I told you guys uh, last week that I had listened back to um, Bill Franklin's class downstairs the first week. So uh, it's fascinating class uh, eventually, we're going to release these recordings out there. I highly encourage all of you to go listen to his class because uh, very, very profound things that he's saying. You have to appreciate old people to listen to it, okay? So just prepare your hearts. But it's so good. It is a rich biblical truth. This is like theological diamonds that, that are sitting in front of your eyes if you'll just take the time to look at them and gaze at them and enjoy them. But the entire hour of that class that he taught, he is doing nothing but describing God. Descri- he's actually describing Jesus as the sus- the verbal sustainer of the universe. He's describing how, when Jesus sets his mind on something, biblically speaking, you see this in Colossians, it becomes reality. You know, it's, in the beginning was the word, and was, the word was with God, and the word was God. Christ was the creating power of God, as, as, as Christ spoke, as the word of God came forth, that's, that's when light began. You know, Christ set his mind on there being a sun, and there was a sun. A, I don't even know the measurements of the sun. What is it, like 10,000 earths could fit inside the sun? So And it's an enormous nuclear explosion that's self-sustaining. I don't know if it's fission or fusion. Does anybody study physics? What the heck is that thing? right? I have no idea. Scientists call it, you know, it's hydrogen eating hydrogen, exploding hydrogen. And it eventually sometimes will release these massive solar flares, you know, these millions of miles tall waves of hydrogen goo squirting out into the into the atmosphere. And when that happens, it'll release so much radiation towards the earth that it'll knock out satellites for a few hours. You won't have weather data for a few hours because this hydrogen squirt happened. <laughs> and God just thought of it and it became a reality. You know the 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 an unfathomable power and and capacity of God to create that, to sustain that, to at the turn of a moment let make the sun stand still, which was really the earth stop turning. You know, in the Old Testament, you can read that story. Like If you take time to pause yourself and think about how big God is, how big Christ is, your heart will be filled with wonder. That's what he's getting at when he says religious affection. Like, let your heart be fixated with beholding God until in your heart there becomes a love, an affection, an emotion. Uh, Think about the cross until those things begin to become realities. Um, That's what he's getting at. There should be more than just science in your walk with the Lord. There should be Actual feelings there. One thing I do want to point you to—I forget which page it was. Um, Page eighty at the top. If you want to go back and read that, he sort of makes the case of what should we do if we don't have that? If we don't feel that, if if our heart towards the Lord when we think about Him is pretty cold and pretty emotionless, how do we uh, get that? And he gives some good wisdom there. I don't want to. For the sake of time, I'm not going to go through it too much. But um, but affection is a great motivation. It should be in our hearts as we seek to walk with the Lord um, ourselves and disciple others. Uh, The second one, a good motivation. This is so good to hear. Uh, A good motivation to have. God's warnings and promises. So he's talking about Scripture here, but he's saying the warnings and the promises that God gives us in His Word, these are God-breathed things to keep us uh, walking with Him. So, warnings and promises in scripture that we should think about and remember as we seek to be obedient. So one of them, some examples from the scriptures, some of these he gives in the book, I thought of a few other ones, but one of these Galatians chapter 5 verses 19 through 21 says this, uh, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Big list there of a lot of sin. And look what he says next. This is the Bible. This is the written word of God. Authoritative, inspired, accurate. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's a big statement right there. Another example, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3-6. through six, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this. Listen to these words. You may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, uh, that is an idolater or... Uh, all those people has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Then he goes further. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Like he's, he's basically saying, I'm serious. Don't let anybody convince you that what I'm saying is not true. Let no one deceive you. For because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Another one, Matthew chapter 7, verses 17 through 19. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. And the point is, there's, there's places in Scripture where God is giving us warnings to rebuke us and to pull us back, and we shouldn't resist those. Now, don't, don't hear me saying that Christ's death on the cross is not good enough for you. It is. Resting in the gospel is enough for you but also don't ignore the truths of Scripture that if you keep walking in sinfulness, you may not have ever trusted in the, in the cross. There's no such thing as a good heart that God's given you through, through faith in Christ that just keeps walking in sin till the end of time. It's just not, it's not real, and you're deceiving yourself if that's, if that's you. So the warnings are a good thing for us to, especially when you get into a place where you're falling into sin a lot, and you're like, am I even saved? Is this even there? Like, Let those warnings rebuke you and pull you back. They're good things for us. Some of the promises of Scripture to cling to. I'll write a few of these down. I'll read a few of them. Psalm 37.4. I love that one, so let me read it. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. How about that one? You go delight yourself in the Lord. You go foster those religious affections and, and saturate your heart with a longing for God. He'll give you the desires of your heart. What does that mean? It means if you're, if you're desiring God, if you're delighting in God and fixing your heart on Him, He will give you Himself. It's, it's, it's uh, the, the um, Sermon on the Mount. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. God is not any further than you than you're willing to look. He's right there. You're experiencing as much of God as you want to. Delight yourself in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. Psalm, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 6-8. through 8. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. But blessed are those who are thirsty for righteousness, for they will be satisfied, it says. Hungry for righteousness from God. Um, uh, Romans eight twenty eight. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. When you're in a storm, man, cling that... Cling to that promise. Uh, 1 Peter 5, 6 is another one. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Uh, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 is another one as well. Uh, the scriptures are just filled with promises. When you're, when you're needing motivations of your heart to walk with the Lord, go find some good things that God promises you of what will happen to you if you walk with the Lord. He's given you good things to cling to. Another good example, I love this passage, is from Deuteronomy. This is really an example of both a warning and a promise. This is Moses speaking to the Israelites right before they're about to enter the promised land. So they've wandered through the desert for 40 years and now they're about to walk in there. And he says to, he's basically the whole book of Deuteronomy is the sermon right before they go in. And over and over again, if you read it, if you've ever studied it, he just keeps telling the people, be diligent with your heart. Keep your heart. Make sure you don't let your heart stray. Hey, don't forget to check your heart. Like over and over again, he's just telling them that. But then at the very end, he says this, see, I have set before you today life and good and death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I commanded you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in His ways, keeping His commandments and His statutes, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you're entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but you're drawn to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life, that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying His voice, holding fast to Him, for He is your life in your length of days, that you may dwell in this land. I mean, he's, it's, it's a, he's setting before them the good things that God's promising and the warnings. So where you see those in Scripture, those are good motivations. We don't have to be afraid of those things. Those are good things to give to people. If you see a brother walking in perpetual sexual sin, it is a good thing to say to him, "Hey, bro, this, this doesn't change. Like, the end result for you is not good." You know, like, like pointing them to these passages is good, good things. So that's number two. Number three, let's do this quickly. Number three, third motivation: a life of repentance. So perpetual, ongoing repentance being a motivation of your heart, uh, waking up every day and returning to. Your knees before God saying, I do not have in myself what it takes to be sanctified, to be right before you. I stand only in the blood of Jesus. You know, that that heart of turning from self towards Jesus, that's repentance. Doing that daily, a life of repentance is... Um, Such a healthy place to live. It's the place where the gospel stays center in your life. Martin Luther, actually the the very first of the 95 Theses when he started the Reformation, uh, was this. The entire life of a believer is to be one of repentance. Our whole life, every day of our life, should be marked by repentance. It's pointing out the the importance, the vitality of us resting in the gospel as a habit of our life. Tim Keller says the same thing. All of life repentance is the best sign that we are growing deeply and rapidly in the character of Jesus. Repentance is turning from uh, your sin, running to the Lord. Um, And the book, there's a quote in here that I told myself to read. Oh, this is good. Um, He sort of defines repentance. To break repentance down into its two sides, we could say that it's turning from and a turning to. So repentance is that sort of turning action. He says this, we're turning from our sinful behaviors and we're turning not to good behavior, not to performance, but to Christ. Repentance subsequently overflows in loving obedience. We must turn from trust in the little gods to trust in the one true God. It is turning from belief in the false promise in order to turn in faith to a true satisfying promise. So it's, it's, it's resting in Christ, not in yourself. That so, is so vital. That's, that's where true sanctification comes from. We've got to teach other people this as well. Um, so we have to learn to turn to Christ, not to ourselves, not to others. What's going to get somebody mature as a believer is not you know, other people in their life. They could have other people and it's broken accountability. What's going to turn them finally to get, start growing with the Lord is actual dependence on the gospel, resting in the gospel, learning who Christ is, loving Christ, running after Him. That's what changes us. So, and it's the only thing that ever will. So as we get further, the next few weeks, we're going to talk more specifically about how this can look as you seek to disciple others. As we get into that, please don't forget what we've talked about tonight. This is the motivational center of disciple making. It's not a goal of getting people to do better and to perform better and to start obeying Jesus better and obeying the scriptures better. It is trying to get people on their knees before Christ. Loving Him, resting in Him, sitting in His lap and saying, Abba, Father, I'm not afraid. I am not afraid of my sinful flesh. I'm not, I don't have to be afraid of it. I have a Savior that doesn't condemn me. He will teach me to put it to death. Resting there is where you'll find life. So, um, sum it all up. What's a disciple? It's a follower of Jesus. What is discipleship? It's following Jesus. What's disciple making? It's helping other people follow Jesus. What is our motivation? Not following rules. It's following Jesus, falling in love with Him, believing and trusting in His promises and warnings, and living in a constant state of repentance, turning to Him. So with that, you've got a few more minutes to talk about these questions, and uh, I'll bring us to a close with some prayer in about five, ten minutes. All right, guys, I'm going to conclude us. I really am going to have <clears throat> better self-control in the weeks ahead, so that you guys can talk more, because I hate stopping you. But it is 8:03, so um, I just want to conclude with this passage from Isaiah. It's always been one of my favorites, <clears throat> but uh, uh, just it, it's a great text that reminds us to to come savor the Lord and, and enjoy the richness of 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 affection and joy and love this to be found in Him. I think we live in an age where people are in a constant itchiness to find some sort of satisfaction for their souls. I mean, the, the age of social media, of, of scrolling, you know, it's a, it's a thumb-based movement that represents the status of our heart, like just looking for something to entertain us and, and mesmerize, mesmerize us in something interesting. It's like we're just hungry. We're hungry and we're thirsty and we can't seem to rest, you know, like that. Um, And and in that age, in in that heartbeat, I love this text. It's Isaiah 55. The whole thing's great, but I'll just read a few of these. Isaiah writes this, "'Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come and buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread?' and and your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear, and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant my steadfast, sure love for David. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that He may have compassion on him. And to our God, for He will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord's. For as the heaven, the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty. It shall accomplish that which I purpose, that, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Now I love that. We've heard that. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts, but contextually what that verse is referencing is the abundance of God's pardon for us. Like you cannot even think about how abundantly God forgives you. You just can't grasp it. So come, come to Him. Eat of Him. So let me pray for us. We'll be dismissed. Jesus, I pray... I pray that You would teach us to do that, Lord, to savor, savor You, Lord, to savor and to drink and to eat and to feast on the glorious joy and, and happiness that we have in You. Lord, You have accomplished for us in the cross something that's purely unthinkable. and. And uh, so few of us ever take the time to to think about it and to simmer in it. But would we do so, Lord? Would we understand we'll never help others to savor Jesus and follow Jesus until we're savoring You and following You? We're not going to help others find the Gospel until we find the Gospel, Lord. So would we be people who pursue You, who seek You, Lord? And would You be faithful to fulfill Your promise and let us find You? As we delight ourselves in You, Lord, would we be given the desires of our hearts? Would we see You, God, as we pursue You? I pray, Lord, just for supernatural leading in each of us on our own this week that You would cause us to pursue You more, to dig into Your Scriptures, to dig into prayer, to dial onto our knees every morning that we might rest in You. Teach us to love You, Jesus. It's in Your name we pray. Amen.